Welcome to this week's episode of the Human Enhancement Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu, and I'm really, really excited to have our guest today. His name is Tom Bilyeu, and you've probably eaten his bars before. So he's a co-founder of Quest Nutrition, and he's also the co-founder CEO of Impact Theory, uh, incubator slash content platform uh, that you know I'm excited to explore more about. I think we have an interesting alliance uh, around the topics that we're interested in exploring. So really excited to have this conversation. Really excited to have this conversation. Really excited to be here, man. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So Quest Bars. I, I remember growing up um, as a kid, and and you know I guess in in in, in big scale of things, a relatively recent company i guess it was founded in 2010 but i remember eating power bars and some of these other competitors you know as, as a kid and then suddenly it just became quest bars i'm, I'm just curious um to, to, to rewind and, and and start from there perhaps as, as, a, as a way to kick out the conversation um it sounds like you know you guys have built something that is really sort of the the definition now of what i would say is a nutrition uh product with, with quest uh What's what was their journey there? Um, one, it's yeah, pretty cool the way that it it didn't exist and then it came out of nowhere, or at least that's certainly what it seemed like to everybody else. To us, it was a, a lot of uh, hard work that went into making it happen. But it really was about creating something that didn't exist, and we wanted to have a zero to one moment, as Peter Thiel calls it, where. We went into a crowded category, but we said, what hasn't anybody done before? And nobody had really made a bar that tasted like it had sugar, but didn't. Right. And that became our calling card. And unbeknownst to us as to why nobody had done it, it was because the equipment that allowed you to manufacture a bar that didn't have a liquid sugar in it um, didn't exist. And so we had to go about engineering our own equipment and really rethinking the entire process and doing things very differently. And that allowed us to get a pretty big jump on the competition and, uh, was how we were able to take the, um, the space by storm, even though, you know, people thought we were crazy when we went into it because there was so much competition and the category had been declining for years. And so to come in and do that, you really have to do something completely new. And so not only was the product new, not only was our process new, but the way that we were marketing was new. And so we were using social media before that was really a thing for businesses. In fact, in 2009, when we first started conceptualizing the company, everyone was debating whether social media was just a huge distraction. And then, quite frankly, nobody was calling it social media. It was just Facebook. Yeah. Um, and so really rethinking how that could be used to build community uh, ended up being a really big win for us. Yeah, no, I think that was interesting was that you guys were definitely ahead of the curve around like the ketogenic diet, low carb. I mean, now it's, especially in Silicon Valley where we're based in, in San Francisco, you know, every third person is experimenting with a ketogenic diet or low carb <laughs> diet. And, you know, yeah, seven, 10 years ago, uh, it was definitely at the peak of like the low fats, uh, craze perhaps. And it was just interesting. Um, well, I, I, I mean, I think you just look at the pattern of like Atkins diet versus, you know, whole foods diets. I mean, you see cycles in nutrition, but it seems that more and more data today suggests that, you know, there is an interesting, you know, underlying change or understanding of nutrition science around, uh, ketogenic friendly or low carb friendly diets. So I'm just curious, like from your perspective, you know, yeah, it would, it would probably did seem insane that a nutrition bar or protein bar category is crowded. But I think, but it, it, from a, from a different lens, 
nothing you also just created a new category in some ways right like a, a, a very low net carb product yes yeah, interesting so i'll differentiate between low carb which i feel like um was really understood in the bodybuilding circle and that's where we went out and we happened to hit it right where we were ahead of the trend as it was moving into mainstream um consciousness so that the timing there was just exquisite it really really worked out for us and i wish i could say that we did that on purpose uh the truth is you know we were just trying to make a bar that we wanted to eat and then so that's low carb um a lot of mind share around that as we were coming into the space and and that's why we were able to ride that wave but then ketogenics on the other hand when we started the company we didn't know about ketogenics we weren't fat guys in fact i speaking for myself um, I was very much a low fat guy. So I was low carb, low fat, which high means I basically just ate yeah, protein. super high protein. Yeah. Exactly. Basically living in a state of rabbit starvation. If you've <laughs> ever heard that phrase before where trappers in the winter would be eating, but the rabbit that they were catching was so lean, they'd actually starve to death, huh. which is pretty weird. Cause you think, how am I starving? I'm eating, right. but you're not getting the fat that your body needs in order to have cellular integrity. And so it's like, it becomes a, literally a death sentence. And I was like always walking this really fine line uh, because I thought fat was going to make me fat like pretty much everybody else. And um, it really wasn't until these two guys, one of who both really have just become um, synonymous with ketogenics, and that's Dominic D'Agostino yep. and Peter Atia, came into the office and uh, had a sit down with my partner who was in charge of um, the nutrition side of the business. And I come in later and he's like, we're a high fat company now. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, this is crazy. Yeah. He's like, no, 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 it's really interesting. We've got to research and learn about this. And so we did end up getting into ketogenics much earlier than other people. But, you know, I spent a lot of years of my life uh, avoiding fat, much to my dismay. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's not interesting. Like, I, I guess, like, from your perspective, seeing and perhaps, like, I think really just, I think, pushing the, the low carb story. I mean, does this feel different than like an, uh, any other diet fad? I mean, I think we get questions here. Oh, is, is ketogenic diet, is, is that just another fad? Is this like an Atkins diet? Is this, is like, is this like the juice cleanse? Um, or, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I think it's like, yes, you can look at historical uh, past and see there's like this different waves. You know, obviously, from our perspective, looking deep into the science, it seems that there is, yeah, there's a fundamental understanding that's, uh, different than, you know, a, a fad cleanse or a fad diet. I'm curious from your perspective as someone who's like, a, you know, gone through and seen a couple of these fat fads, you know, what is there a distinction? Do you think there's a distinction? Well, so it really comes down to how you define fad because I think from a sales perspective, I think ketogenics is going to be a fad and I think it's going to go through a pretty fascinating cycle where right now we're like on this uptick, huge hype. I think a lot of money is going to be made in moving early on ketogenics and then i think like the low carb craze i think it's going to crater out and then at the and the reason it's going to crater out by the way is people are going to get fat doing it and the reason they're going to get fat is ketogenics is about what you don't eat as much as what you do eat and so i think people don't understand that and we joked at quest about creating a shirt that says ketogenics you're doing it wrong and you know because we did it wrong right like as, as you learn about this like you don't even really understand it and so you're you're making it additive so you're adding fat to your diet rather than adding fat and stripping away carbohydrate and protein and that's where people get really confused is they don't understand that a ketogenic diet has has a uh, moderate 
moderate to say the least or, or adequate protein. And that's a really important part because of um, gluconeogenesis. If you're still a sugar burner, if you're still burning glucose and you dump a bunch of fat into the system, then chances are that, that you won't see the benefits because you won't go into ketosis, A. And B, if you're not in ketosis, then you're not metabolizing the fat and you're probably not getting the fat loss that you wanted. Right. So it's, it, it's like, Right, it's very tricky. Now, I think in the long run, ketogenics wins because it's real. And so you're talking about that there seems to be some underlying science, and, and I would say definitively there's underlying science. And when people do it right, when they do virtually no carbohydrate, moderate levels of protein, and then high fat, if they get into ketosis, then your relationship to hunger changes, and that's that, I think, is one of the biggest wins. Forget all the knock-on health consequences, which I think are very positive to a ketogenic diet. Forget about the potential implications with anti-cancer benefits and all of that stuff. Even forget just the, um, the anti-inflammatory properties, which I can say changed my life. Forget all of that. The way that it changes your hunger is so amazing. It becomes much easier to eat a lower-calorie diet which then allows you to burn fat without the cognitive decline. So because of that, I think you're going to see this trend over time where ketogenics really takes off, but I think that's like a 10-year horizon. So anybody that can survive the, the inevitable like the spike death, and crash right? of any hype cycle. Right, like it, exactly. Yeah. No, I think you pick up a good point around it's every, like you're probably doing a ketogenic diet wrong. I mean, unless – because uh, I think just even in our office, we have people that, you know, ate keto and we're like, hey, let's test your blood ketone levels. Let's <laughs> finger prick you. And it's like, then it's like, hey, your blood is like 0.5 millimole ketones. It's like you're not you're, – you're likely doing it not that well, right? And I think it is like – to. And then you ask people what they eat. They're like, oh, I eat a lot of meats or pork shoulder or something. And it's like it is kind of a fattier protein, but it's, you're still eating a lot of protein. And I think to properly do it, yes. I mean I'm curious like – what were you eating and, and, and were you measuring like how rigorous were you measuring it to make sure you're doing it properly? Like what was your personal yeah. journey in, in, into the ketogenic diet? Uh, my personal journey was, was pretty weird. I don't recommend that people do it the way that I did it. So the way that a ketogenic diet was introduced to me is as an anti-cancer. And so I was like, Whoa, anything, even if this ends up not being true, like I just want to try it. Right. The, the potential upside is so massive that, you know, let me give this a shot. And so I went into a therapeutic protocol where I was eating four to one. So I don't know how much you talk about ketogenics in, in the podcast, but for anybody that doesn't know, so for every combined gram of uh, protein and carbohydrate, I was eating four grams of fat. So if I ate half a gram of um, a carb and half a gram of protein, I'm eating four grams of fat. I mean, it's crazy. It was so miserable. And I had what they call keto flu. So I felt terrible because I didn't know how to supplement properly. It was just an absolute nightmare. I mean, 80% fat from diet. I mean, like, were you eating sticks of butter, oil? I mean, what were you close. doing to, like, a, hit that? A lot, of, a lot of oil, olive oil, coconut oil, butter. Um, <laughs> and, and then also, so on top of all of that, so your meals obviously are ridiculously small. I was suppressing the life out of my calories. So I was eating about a thousand to 1200 calories a day. Ooh, okay. Cause in a therapeutic protocol, at least the one that I was doing, you need a certain ratio between your ketones, which I was trying to keep above three and your blood glucose. So to get that ratio, which now, cause this was years ago, but I don't remember the exact ratio anymore, but it was like, it was crazy. I felt so gross. Uh, and I was just starving to death. So, 
everyone was like, oh, it changes your relationship to hunger. It's amazing. I was like, lies. Like, this is horrible and hateful in every conceivable way. But there was one thing that was so noticeable that it really gave me hope. And that was I had struggled with inflammation problems for 15 years. For 15 years, I, I couldn't play video games, which I love, by the way. I could not play video games. I had to ice my wrists every night wow. just to be able to continue to work out in the gym. Really? It was it was crazy. I couldn't press heavy, nothing. It was an absolute nightmare. And in about three days on a four to one ketogenic diet, my wrist felt perfect. And it was so noticeable. I was like, this is a drug-like effect. I feel like I'm taking some sort of anti-inflammatory medication. It was that rapid and that profound. So I was like, hey, there's something here. But I stuck to the anti-cancer therapeutic protocol for like three weeks, started with a 72-hour water-only fast. So I mean, it, there was just so much emotional misery tied up in it that I didn't go ketogenic properly for like another year. So after that, but I stayed high fat. And I was like, wow, this is really, even though now I'm just high fat, I'm not actually in a ketogenic state as measured with my blood. I still thought, okay, high fat is, is transformative. It's totally changed my life. So then a year later, everyone was heckling me at Quest and they're like, dude, you just did it wrong. Like you don't need to be four to one, go two to one, like try it. And so after, you know, we started developing our own stuff, I thought, all right, I really need to try this again and started doing two to one, um, ketogenic. And, and I did that for nine months because it felt so good cognitively, uh, anti-inflammatory. My relationship to hunger really did change. It was just incredible, but I was losing muscle mass. And so finally I was like, okay, I, I need to do something different. This feels good, but my muscles don't feel good. And so I started cycling. So I'd go ketogenic for a week, then high protein back and forth, yeah. back and forth. And that's, that's been my journey. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I feel like, I think periodization seems to be more and more, uh, you know, in our experience to be sort of like the best of both worlds, right? Like a ketogenic diet is good for certain things, but in terms of, yeah, like anaerobic heavy lifting, building, you know, high amounts of lean muscle tissue, maybe not necessarily optimal because you want insulin, you want carbs to be repleting and building muscle mass. So I think, I think that tends to be where a lot of people end up landing, where uh, you start off going super hard in the keto and then you start seeing really good results. And then as sort of the initial gains attenuate out, it's like, okay, what is a sustainable thing I can do, uh, you know, for the rest of my life. And, and I think for myself, you know, I do a lot of intermittent fasting, so I'll do, you know, a 24 or 36 hour fast. I mean, I'm curious, like a lot of people that eat keto have experimented with fasting as well. I mean, you mentioned doing a 72 hour water fast. I mean, do you typically do a lot of fasts and incorporate that into your daily schedule or weekly schedule? Or is that something that you just do, uh, on and off? So I do at least once a year, I do a 72 hour water only fast. Okay. And then, um, not every time I go into a keto cycle, do I do intermittent fasting, but most. Okay. And so I'll do 16 hours typically, sometimes a little bit more. If I'm traveling, there are times where I'll accidentally do a 24 hour fast just cause I can't get the right macros. Um, and as you know, like when you're really like, let's say North of one or 1.5 ketones, you're just not that hungry. Yeah. Like it's really it's really manageable. How about that? You may still experience hunger, but you don't experience the cognitive decline. You don't have a loss of energy. So it's like it, not eating something if the thing that you would have to eat isn't right becomes pretty easy. So that's that has been just a huge, huge win. So I do that quite frequently. And the fat loss when you're doing intermittent fasting is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious from your uh, your therapeutic ketosis protocol, 
was that based on you know Thomas Siegfried's work? We had him on our podcast. I mean, I'm just curious where, where that protocol come from. Because they would say that you know Dom D'Agostino, Tom Siegfried are pretty big into the anti-cancer research into in, in ketones. So I'm just curious, uh, you know, where did that where did that come from? At the time, we were definitely way more in tune with Dominic. Um, and since then, so I, I've never really dove deep on, um, Siegfried. So Siegfried, but my partner who's like way, way, way into this, um, he did big time and they know, so I'm not at quest on a day to day basis anymore, but I know that they work, um, with all the guys in the ketogenic world and they put on, um, uh, a whole conference around, um, how nutrition can be used therapeutically. And, and so they really dove deep and had him come as a speaker and all that. Uh, but for me, it was driven by Dominic and, and the things that he had been saying and, and ways that we had been internalizing that ourselves at Quest and trying our own protocols. And we went pretty heavy um, on the anti-cancer um, angle with uh, dogs. And we're really oh, looking right. at that. Keto, Ev- pet. Have- Keto pet? Exactly. Yeah. Keto Pet Sanctuary and really looking at what the implications um, were there, which is really intriguing. And then we were beginning to do things with um, hospitals and cancer patients in humans, which was really, really interesting and directionally really fascinating. And I'm really curious to see how far they take that and, and what that looks like in a couple of years because it, it's pretty encouraging. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious. Like, I think, you know, my journey into the key ketosis space was essentially from fasting to the diet to now looking at exogenous ketones um i'm I'm curious you know as you were you know exploring and 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 optimizing your your own protocol did you experiment with ketone salts ketone esters sounds like obviously mct oils some of the ketone precursors curious about your journeys or experience there as well yeah we did so um we were doing, or I was supplementing with some exogenous ketones when I was in the therapeutic phase. I hated it. It tastes so nasty. <laughs> um, yeah. So that also, I didn't like the way that it made me feel to be honest, but that may have been just cause I was so hardcore. It's four to one plus taking exogenous ketones, having the keto flu. It was just a, a horrendous way to go. Yeah. All, all user error. Like I will be the first to admit this is all user error. But um, since then, because I have such an easy time now getting into ketosis nutritionally, um, I haven't supplemented with exogenous ketones. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think a lot of, there's a lot of confusion out there in terms of like, can I just replace like endogenous ketosis with exogenous ketones? And it's like, well, no, I, they're just pretty separate mechanisms. So it's interesting to yeah, I mean, I think one could have theoretically bridge and make and sort of remove the keto flu or keto adaptation period by having exogenous ketones, but you're doing, you know, completely different metabolic uh, pathways for you. You're not breaking down your fat to produce ketones. You're uh, eating ketones directly, essentially. Um, so yeah, I'm curious. So so I mean, obviously, Quest Nutrition was a big part of your professional career, and now you're. Uh, running impact theory and it which seems like to be a very innovative uh pl- and again like a very interesting combination of like an incubation uh platform as well as like a content platform you know what was the genesis what was the thesis behind impact theory so working at quest and starting that it really was a reaction to having been chasing money at that time for nearly a decade and and realizing i was living the cliche of money can't buy happiness uh and so i was making more money than i'd ever made on paper i was quite wealthy and i just thought 
I'm so unhappy, like this is ridiculous. And this was back when we owned a software company. And so we decided that, I'm long story short, I went and quit and said, I can't do this anymore. Like this, I'm miserable. I need to go do something that makes me feel alive. And my partners ended up agreeing and they didn't want to do it anymore either. And so we decided that we were going to sell that company and start something that was all about value creation. It was about building community. It was about just being humanity plus. And so that company, of course, ends up being Quest Nutrition and goes on to just be amazingly successful. And I think largely because we stopped saying what's gonna be more profitable and we started asking what's gonna add more value to people's lives. And so that simple reframe just has echoed through my life in, in a huge way. And I've worked in the inner cities a lot starting when I was 18 years old and going through Quest and you know hiring hundreds and hundreds of people that grew up in the inner cities and seeing how it impacts their way of thinking. I realized if I really wanted to help people at scale, it wasn't enough just to address the pandemic of the body, I had to address the pandemic of the mind. And so trying to get Quest as a brand to be flexible enough to deal with both sides was proving to be very difficult and, and was clearly going to be a very expensive endeavor. So we had built a studio inside Quest to create all of this content and I just ended up spinning that out into a standalone company, which is Impact Theory, which is literally my theory on how to impact people at a mindset level in order to help them really achieve what they want to achieve in life. And, and so I'm a huge believer that there's a, a symbiotic relationship and, and just so much um, connective tissue, if you will. I don't mean that literally, but connective tissue between the brain and the body where there, there isn't really a, a separation, right? It's an ecosystem. So if you think of the human as a superorganism that – um, is the you know microbiota in your um, gut? It's uh, everything that lives on your skin. It's you know all of your organs working in um, conjunction with each other. It's mitochondria. Like it, too much, we're trying to separate the two. And when people start talking about the mind, they get very woo woo y. And so it's like I wanted to really bring the two back together. And so we're. Um, creating a lot of content at uh, Impact Theory, and we're working with companies. The company that I'm working with right now is a medical device company, uh, which is fascinating. I have no idea if it's going to end up being real or not, um, but it, it's just too interesting not to really explore. It's a company called Modius Health, and they're looking at vestibular stimulation and whether or not that has what seem to be potentially profound implications in terms of um, fat storage for sure, but I think that it also has pretty big implications with anxiety and depression as well. Vestibular, and then so in the inner ear. Yeah, so you can stimulate it right behind the ear. It, the nerve actually comes just below the surface there, and so you can stimulate it with a non-invasive device. Um, and on paper, it works, and it's just that there's always a huge difference between on paper and in reality. And they did um, an a Indiegogo account, and it ended up they were trying to raise $50,000 and they had to turn it off at 1.5 million. Wow. So, I mean, it's just crazy, right? So, but you know, it's like when you're talking about fat loss and you're saying, hey, this device that you wear in your head, like it's gonna do it for you. So, but they're, they're very realistic and they told everybody, first of all, we have a money back guarantee because we don't know if this is gonna work. Uh, here's what we see on paper, try it and give us feedback. That's really what we're looking for. And so far the feedback's really been directionally encouraging um, and I think what we're ultimately going to find there is people that are um, over a certain, and I, I hate to use BMI, but like I don't know if it's going to break it just um, overweight or if it's going to break it obesity, like where that is. But like for me, 
uh, marginal difference, I would say, to like I'm in the placebo range. So I use it, but I don't actually know if it's doing anything right. for me. We have other people that are overweight to morbidly obese, and they're noticing pretty big swings positively, which is incredible. Right. So just trying to get enough data to see if that's real. But so now combine that with, if you ask me what's the stated mission of impact theory, the answer is to pull people out of the matrix, to build a traditional content studio that rivals Disney. So we're you know into comic books, TV shows, movies, like that's what we're trying to do. Because when I think about real holistic health, it has everything to do with optimizing the body and it has to do with optimizing the mind. And I think the only way to influence that at scale, on a global scale, is to influence belief system and the only way to do that is through narrative. So that's why we're doing companies, incubating companies that are you know, health focused, but then also addressing that belief system through content. I mean, it's about changing culture. That's what it really, I mean, that's what you're, you're doing. You're, you're defining a new culture, which I think is, that's a, that's a very ambitious and, and, and cool, you know, goal and aspirational goal. I mean, I think in some ways, right, like when we talk about fasting, you know, it's, it, we talk about that as breaking like the, the culture of eating three meals a day plus snacks plus happy hour. And it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, you're thinking, so I'm curious from a roadmap there. Obviously, are you doing all of them all, all at once? Are you, are you just starting with like a podcast and a, in a, in a, in a sort of a, a web like video series? Or are you doing like comic book video or movie productions all at once? I mean, what's the roadmap there? So we, this is actually something that we put up on our website. It's a three phase approach and I put it on the website cause I wanted 10 years from now, I want people to go, Whoa, he's doing exactly what he said he was yeah. going to do. Um, so it starts with building community. So we're doing a lot of social content. And the reason is if we can build community, then we have negotiating power when we go to traditional Hollywood distribution channels. Cause the ultimate goal, um, from a financial standpoint for sure. And then because of something called self signaling, the ultimate goal is merchandise and we only make one type of, um, content. So whether it's social content or whether it's a traditional movie, um, we want to emulate the Disney model. So Disney's the only studio in history. It's been around since the 1930s and no one has ever replicated it where they only tell one kind of story and they just approach it from a thousand different angles. So if I say to you, hey, I'm going to go see a Paramount movie or I'm going to go see a Sony movie or Warner Brothers movie, you don't know anything about it. Right. But if I say I'm going to go see a Disney movie, you already know something about it. Yeah. So every piece of content that they make feeds into their brand ethos. That makes the brand itself marketable. Uh, so if you have a new movie coming out, the most powerful marketing vehicle is just to say it's a Disney movie. So that's why we're building community. We want to make clear what the ethos is. So if Disney is the most magical place on earth, we want to be the most empowering place on earth. So the social content allows us to make that clear. And then because it just takes a longer time, we're working behind the scenes in essence to create intellectual property uh, we start with comic books because you can make a lot of them for relatively cheap and it's a traditional path to um, being made into a tv show or a movie Marvel. yeah exactly yeah. exactly that's interesting i always thought the disney model was was a brilliant business model right like again like the merchandising like you have your toys that sell the movie that sell disneyland tickets that sell uh, more toys and you have like an entire generation of children being sort of incubated or just brought up in this culture around values that sort of Disney is able to sort of be like, yeah, we, we kind of control people's childhoods and like everything makes money all in one. And it's like a very interesting virtuous cycle. So uh, that's interesting. That's cool. Um, I mean, yeah, it's like, it will be exciting to see the flywheel go, right? Like, 
I mean, you're you're on your way, which is cool. Yes. I mean, is there a surprise? I mean, this is like I guess a second or a third. I mean, I guess a second big venture. I mean, I I presume you've done multiple projects in the past before even Quest, right? I mean, was there a big difference from this journey so far versus Quest? I mean, obviously, you know, a little bit, you know, more battle scars, more resources, a better network. Um, is this time around easier, or is it just completely? a new set of challenges because you're just tackling a different space. I mean, yeah, it's, it's easier because I know more. So my journey is, um, the guys that ended up being my partners at quest. They originally hired me as a copywriter at their technology company. And they said, look, this is a startup. So don't think of yourself as a copywriter. That's just like your tuition. You can have any role you want. You just have to become the right person for that job. So it was all about learning, getting better skill acquisition, improvement, um, and I and I worked my way up very rapidly in that company. And then, as I was saying earlier, ultimately got so fed up and so frustrated that I was just so unhappy that I went in and quit. But then they felt the same. And so it starts this chain reaction where we start Quest. And so that not only was an amazing um, battleground because we scaled so rapidly. So I had to go through that evolution of, you know, not existing, making the bars with rolling pins um, and, you know, handheld knives and sealing them three at a time till when I left, we were doing 1.5 million bars a day. So, I mean, it's just like that, that growth as a human, as a business leader, as an entrepreneur was just incredible. It started so off with now, like a kitchen, like you're making these in your kitchen. Literally. That's a, that's literally. a real hustle story. That's awesome. Yeah. No, it was cool. We were running the software company by day and then making the bars at night. So <laughs> it was uh, it, it was a nights and weekends hustle, you know, for for probably the first. I mean, God, if you count the uh, the period where we were formulating the bar for almost two years, was it scary to do your first like contract manufacturer order, or if you you know? Well, we didn't. It was actually way scarier because we had to buy all the equipment. So we tried to contract manufacture it, and they couldn't do it. So we had to buy the equipment and do it ourselves. That was like mildly scary, but honestly, we were so excited about what we were doing. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about being afraid of it. So you were like, "All right, we're gonna buy some equipment. We're gonna spend some capex, buy buy some custom yeah. equipment." And, and, and look, that like that definitely there was a moment there when I remember when my partner first suggested it, he was like, we're going to have to manufacture ourselves. I was like, get out of here. Like, that's crazy. And then it's like, actually, that may be exactly what we have to do. So we, we got over that that hump pretty fast. And so by the time that we were actually spending the capital, it was like, OK, yeah, you know, we're emotionally ready for this. And because we said we're either going to do it right or we're not going to do it at all. And it became very clear to us that. Every contract manufacturer we spoke to wanted us to change the formulation. So that was the one thing we weren't willing to do. And so that only left either not doing it or coming up with our own yeah, equipment. It's probably smart, right? Because then you have a pretty big moat so no competitors could follow you because no one else is willing to buy their own factory, essentially. I mean, exactly. I mean like, I, I guess to even have it all food safety grade, you, you really had to like go pretty hard, right? Like, okay, we're going to get a food safe warehouse. We're going to do all the NSF, whatever, you know, CGMB requirements. So you got to go through like quite a bit of a planning to even pull the trigger. It's not like, oh, we're going to buy like a, you know, Quest Bar Maker. Like, I mean, this is like a six-month, year-long process beyond like the two-year process to even formulate the thing, right? Yeah, it was crazy. And that's why we had to start making everything by hand because you've got to rent a kitchen that's already, you know, health certified. And, oh, man, it was it really was crazy. And it's one of those where I honestly don't know if I had known how hard it was going to be would we have still done it? Right. 
but luckily we we literally had no idea so it's like you know you just oh this step this step this step and then you suddenly realize how like i didn't even know all the things you have to do for your gmps and all of that like or that you have to because a lot of the equipment that we bought we had to buy from other countries and then bring in and re-modify it to work on our line which means now you have to get the equipment certified and going through that process is a nightmare so yeah it was uh thankfully i did not know <laughs> but i presume along the time you were basically flipping your your handmade art artisanal quest bars like pretty like pretty quickly so i guess it sounded like you started with uh with the bodybuilding community and it was just like moving like hotcakes. So like, I guess from that experience, you guys had a lot of confidence that, Hey, this is something that is pretty unique here that people want. Yeah. We, like we definitely one step at a time. So it was like a exactly. left step, right foot, left foot, right foot. And just, and you just kept moving 20,000, you know, steps ahead. And then you have this billion dollar plus revenue company. Exactly. Uh, going uh, before before flipping the topic, there you were talking about how uh, scaling as a entrepreneur, as a business leader, uh, the first time around, how is that informing your second, uh, I guess, go around the rodeo with uh, with impact theory? Yeah, I mean, look, it, if you're not learning from your past mistakes, then you know you, you're just handicapping yourself so atrociously. So going through that and building something so big and all the lessons that you learn and all the things that you try that worked and all the things that you try that didn't work. And if you've got no ego about that and you're really just looking at the data and saying, okay, what was a win? What was a loss? Why was it a loss? How could I adapt, not make that mistake again? So I'm bringing now all of that in. So even though it, it applies to a different industry, it's like, so much of this stuff is universal, man. And that's one thing that I've really learned in doing the interview show. And I'm sure you get the same feeling. It's like you hear people in all these disparate industries saying the same things over and over and over. And that's been incredibly fascinating to do impact theory, the show and find out like, okay, all these successful people, they've gone through the same thing that I've gone through. They've learned a lot of the same lessons. They're using different words, but at the end of the day, there's universal principles to success. There's just an effective way to think and it almost doesn't matter who you're talking to, whether it's Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, you know, or, or somebody like myself, you know, it's like, we're, we're all saying the same thing, even though those guys, holy hell, like what they've done is it's pure insanity, but it's like same principles just carried out, you know, on a, on a even bigger scale. Yeah. yeah, no, that, I think that's true. I think it's like everyone has their own slice of their intuition. I mean, it's like different experience sets, but I think there's some fundamental truth that we're all learning on this journey. Like, yes, like if you're building rockets or you're building a, uh, you know, a shoe distribution business or you're building a, a nutrition bar business, like there's different like visceral feelings around like like the specific tactical problem. But yes, there there is some like strategic deeper truth behind like, you know, the work ethic and, and, and the strategy and, 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 and talking to customers and all, all sort of basic fundamentals. But I think that one thing that I've always felt is that you can read like the blog post, you can listen to, you know, someone like yourself, but you don't like intuitively like feel the pain of what, what you had to go through to, to, to like really internalize that lesson. I mean, do you feel that? Yeah. What do you think about that? Like, can you teach and you can, can you transmit those lessons? Uh, hundred percent fidelity. Like I, 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 clearly you can't, but like perhaps you can inspire at the very least and, and give some sort of roadmap. 
I, you're right. I don't think you can do it with 100% fidelity by any stretch of the imagination. And they say a fool never learns, a smart man learns from his mistakes, and a wise man learns from the mistakes of others. It's tough to be wise. Like It's tough to really read a book or listen to a podcast and be like, okay, I got it. I won't make that mistake. But A, if you're going through it, it's invaluable to hear how other people have solved the problem. It's also invaluable to hear how people think. And so I'm writing a book right now, and it is literally about how to think. So don't worry about like the specifics of your industry. Just here's the belief system that I built that took me from scrounging in my couch cushions to find enough change to put gas in my car in my 20s, which is a true story, to building a billion-dollar business, to having the kind of financial success that I'd always dreamed of. It's like it, it all came down to things that I was doing to my mind far more than anything that I was – learning specifically tactics wise on any given business right. i mean that's interesting like the like the mind game itself i mean how was that personal journey like i i guess you, you'll be covering in your book but are there some you know top one or two things that really helped you build your mind game around like the confidence and your ability to, to be like a growth mindset right because like, i think a lot of people just think hey um this is what i have and this is what i can do and that's my limit where I, I think it sounds like from very much from what you preach and what you talk about, it's you you have no limits. You one should not reset their own limit. Let like the rest of the world stop you. Yeah, man, I so agree with that. And I think that the growth mindset is is certainly my primary driver. Um, to give you a couple things that have been just wildly transformative for me, what you build your self-esteem around matters. That's probably, it's one of the, it was a lightning rod moment for me where I realized I was arguing for an idea that I knew was wrong just because it was mine. And so I thought, okay, hold on a second. Like, what do I want here? Do I, because at the time, all I was doing was chasing money. And so I was like, do I want to be rich, which is what I tell myself and everybody else, or do I want to be right? Because I'm acting like I just want to be right. And so I realized that being right would make me feel good about myself, which is actually really important. People need to feel good about themselves. And I need, like, ego is good. Pride is good. Self-esteem is good if you build it around the right thing. But if you build it around something like being smart, being talented, being right. It's going to be corrosive. You're going to piss other people off. You're going to turn people off. You're not going to have the open mind that you need to actually get better. But if you can flip it and take the identity, take the pride, take the self-esteem of being the learner, right? Being willing to admit that you're wrong, going all in on figuring out what's actually working, being data-driven, always being willing to change your mind. Even when 30 seconds before you were arguing really hard for something, can you, once you realize, oh, wait, that... This person is actually saying something that's more likely to take us towards our goal. And so now I'm totally on that team. Yep, I get it. I understand it. Now go be the energy for that idea. So once I flipped my self-esteem to being built around being a learner, that, that was just wildly, wildly transformative for me. And then just always be reading. So reading, reading, reading is really the foundation of my success. And to your point, I'm not getting it 100% high fidelity for sure. But it gives me context. It's helped me build that the way that I think. It's helped me build that belief system that really guides everything for me. So those are two like just huge things in my yeah. life. What are you reading right now? I mean, I think that's the reading point is interesting because I think, again, like how do you learn from other people? Learn from other people's mistakes. And I think most I, I one thing that always struck me was that everyone kind of reads the same crap on social media. 
but then if, if but if it's like inputs into the brain then you have similar outputs right if you if we're all ingesting the same types of you know breaking news cnbc trump does this trump does that or you know whatever, whatever happens then you have the same kind of outputs that are generated so if you just read from different sources from you know texts that have stood the test of time or texts that are just interesting or, or sci-fi novels or something that just like peaks other aspects of your brain one could you know my theory there is like maybe you have like just better ideas because you have better or just different inputs than everyone else so I'm, like how do you get how do you get your source of or where do you get inspired to read you know what are you reading now um yeah how so, selective I'm, are you I'm, with with your with your inputs into your brain um i i'm selective but never slow so for instance if i like oh man what should i read next i would sooner read something that isn't perfect than to not read um, but I listen to people's recommendations, especially people that I trust. So I'm always asking people like you, what are they reading? Uh, what I'm reading right now, I'm, I'm going on two paths. So one, my wife is struggling with microbiome issues. So the last two plus years of our life has been about learning about the microbiome and trying to overcome that. I tried to work with doctors. It just was not working out. Um, so finally I said, you know what? forget this, I'm going to become an expert in the field myself. Hmm. And so I've really now gone deep and just really, really educating myself on the microbiome and what that's about. So I'm reading books along those lines. We're starting a new show called Health Theory, which is to bring on some of these people that I'm reading about the microbiome from that I think are just extraordinary thinkers in, I mean, look, I'm preaching to the choir here, but like this is about to be the next big wave is people are going to realize that from antibiotics to our diets over the last like 70 years, we've been making catastrophic mistakes and C-sections and all that. Like we're, we're really about, we are facing a pandemic of the microbiome and we're just now beginning to realize that that's the problem. So I'm reading about that, all kinds of stuff. The, um, the specific book that I'm reading on the mindset side, because I'm always trying to read about something in mindset. So right now it's microbiome and then mindset. Um, is Ray Dalio's book, Principles, mm, which, yeah. oh my God, if you haven't read it, that is a must, literally an absolute must. That book is is just unbelievably good. Yeah, no, I think I, I read the original PDF before he turned it into a book, and I think his communication style of just being fully, fully... Like high, I, I, like high. I don't, I don't know what term he uses anymore, but like it's like the high bandwidth, like just tell the truth, like have no, like don't hide any, you know, misinterpretations of hurt other people's feelings. I think that was like very interesting to me. Just like, it's it's a very idealistic goal. Like, of course, you want to convey your full uh, information, but it's like weird. It's like it's so hard to do. Like, there's so there's so many cultural norms that you you can't like call someone out directly or you're you're awkward about it. I mean. Again, I think the reading something and putting to practice is, I think, the hardest challenge. I, I'm curious, like, how do you test yourself to put some of these concepts to challenge, to, to, to actual practice? I mean, yeah, so I'm intoxicated by his book, so I'm moving rapidly on it. So I haven't even finished it yet, and here at Impact Theory, we're already uh, beginning to implement some of the strategies. So um, it starts with getting everyone together in a group and saying, hey, I'm reading this book. If you want to understand the moves that I'm about to make, you should read it. So have many people in the company now reading it just because they really want to understand my mindset and where I'm coming from. And then finding ways to involve the group in at a minimum while, because he outlines it in the book, no one's going to be like, oh my God, this sounds amazing. Let's do it. People get really leery about big cultural change. Right. People get leery about um, 
you know, calling each other out in public. So my ask was, I want you guys to give me very direct, very aggressive, very public feedback. So don't pull me aside and say that you have a problem. Just tell me straight up in the group. Obviously, if you feel like you, for your own reasons, you can't say it in front of the group, then by all means, pull me aside. But I want my feedback in front of everybody else. So if you're not happy with something I'm doing, because I need to set the standard for how to respond to that. They need to see me lower my defenses, be open to that criticism, and then make changes based on it. And then now in private, and this is where we are as an organization, so I'm getting my feedback in public. And now in private, I'm giving people like the no holds barred, super direct, like this is where we are. Let's agree on the truth rather than protecting feelings or anything. Let's agree on the truth. But they have to know that I'm coming from a good place, which came from talking about principles, why I think it's so important to say the hard things, to really have the direct conversation, make sure everybody's bought in on the growth mindset, on self-improvement, that if you don't hear the hard things from outside, because you're never going to be able to see it yourself, if you don't hear it from the outside, then you're never going to be able to make the changes. And so that, that's what we're doing in, in our group. And I'll just believe, Ray, he said that 30% of the world can't handle it and you're going to lose them. So I'm very open to that because, look, at the end of the day, nothing has bitten me in the ass more than people either feeling like I'm moving chess pieces on a board because I'm trying to help them get somewhere without ruffling their feathers or them not buying into the fact that this is how we do it. Like, we're going to be direct. We're going to be upfront. I'm not trying to be a dick. I just want you to really, and I want to know, right? I want the feedback. So if you can create that environment, yes, you may have attrition of some people that just cannot hang with that. But I really do believe you want to talk about something that came through just high fidelity for me. Like, I believe on the other side of that, an organization that can really um, acknowledge who's good at what, who's got believability where, and then just say the hard things. I think on the other side of that is, is real efficiency. And I'm, I am a psycho, Jeff, about efficiency. That's one thing. Wow. Like, if you really want to achieve, like, you've got to get deadly efficient. Cool. And then, you know, how, you know, I want to, you know, I want to be respectful of your time here. You know, you know, what are the interesting bow hacks are you working on or, or experimenting with at this point? And what are some of the most exciting projects that you're uh, hoping to release soon? I mean, I, you mentioned uh, health theory as a, as a as a new project you're spinning up. Um, so yeah, you know, where you know where else you know what what should we all be following and, uh, that you're working on? So right now, it's all about creating the intellectual property. I'm obsessively focused on actually building the studio. So the last thing I want to do is be talking about the studio, but all you ever see is social content. So I feel like we're doing that, we're doing that well. Our community is growing and very rapidly. Um, so that's great. But now I want to put out the comic books. I want to be making um, real strides in terms of getting TV shows, films actually out there and produced. Um, so that that's my obsessive focus and honestly takes up about 70% of my time and energy. So right now what's visible to the world is the social content, but that, that really is relegated to a relatively small part of what I spent my day on. So um, we've got two comic books right now that are in contract negotiations. One of them is, is with somebody who is just incredibly famous that we would be placing as a central character. If we can pull that off, uh, that, that would be incredible. So, um, hopefully very soon we'll be able to make an announcement who we're partnering with to get that done. That, that would just be amazing. Uh, we've partnered with a major Hollywood management company. So I'm really excited about that to package up some of our projects. Um, so more to come on both those fronts, not at a 
point yet where I can um, name anything, uh, uh, just because there's a, a very famous British saying, many a slip between cup and lip. So until like until it's signed, until it's signed, I, I have yeah. to understand. So, but uh, getting close on those, and yeah, I'm really excited about that. So, but keep your eyes peeled for comics. That'll be phase one. Okay, cool. And then in terms of personal biohacks, and I, I know we talked about a little bit about keto, a little bit about cycling, periodizing keto and and and, and low fat and, and higher protein. Um, anything else that you've been playing around with? Like I think. Uh, I was recently talking to folks that were experts in hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I'm curious, um, in terms of, in, in, in the same goals of maximizing efficiency, what else has worked for you beyond uh, the stuff that we already talked about? Fast. So, yeah, unfortunately, the thing that I'm really doing is fasting for me personally. That That's huge, and I play around with that a lot. Um, and then with my wife, it's all about microbiome. So we've been working with a company very closely um, it's run by a friend of mine called Viome, and working with them, they the level of testing that they do on your, uh, they test not only the bacteria, they test viruses, fungus, and they're testing RNA. So what's the actual expression of the genes, um, which is really interesting. So we can really dial in exactly what's going on. Um, so yeah, biohacking our way around SIBO has been our most recent um, endeavor along those lines, which is just been bizarrely all consuming, but it seems like we're really making progress there. Um, honestly, like I'm not a, I'm not a big biohack guy. So my thing is pretty meat and potatoes, get sleep, eat right. And I mean, look, that's a whole universe unto itself. <laughs> admittedly. Yeah. Uh, and then exercise. And if you're doing those three things and you're protecting your microbiome, like, man, th those are, those are big wins. All right. We'll leave it there. Thanks so much, Tom. You got it, man. Thanks for having me on. That was a fun conversation with Tom. Uh, super energetic, passionate, interesting uh, character. I mean, I, I, just his story of making his own Quest nutrition bars in the kitchen, you know, packing up three bars at a time res really resonated with our story at Human where we were hustling right in the beginning, you know, experimenting with our own handmade nootropics and all of that. So awesome to see him build a billion dollar business and then migrate on to uh you know really affecting culture change which i think is something again that we're really interested in doing at human um so you know check out his content I, he's on twitter you can check out impact theory uh I, i've seen a few of his different programs and shows and they're interesting i mean he's a high energy guy he brings on good guests so another program that i recommend uh until next time uh, you know, we'll, we'll see you then. Uh, of course, anytime, leave us questions, comments, and also guests that you'd like to see on the show. Uh, and, and if you like this program, please subscribe and, and give us good ratings and comments. Uh, Zill, our producer, would appreciate them. I would appreciate them. Uh, find us on Apple iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, YouTube. Thank you.